Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. Barry, a thrill-packed episode as always, but still not good enough for YouTube. That's all I'm going to say about that. On today's episode, Barry, how are you doing today, my man? I am doing good. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, been a whirlwind where I am. I have moved, though I am still in the state. Oh, yeah. You, wait a minute. You're announcing. I am. I am you coming clean. I am going to, I'm going to say it, but. Enough about uh, you coming, but anyway, go ahead. Well, that's, it's occurring more frequently now, but the lovely Linda has opened the pearly gates of her wonderful abode where <laughs> she lives. Oh, her house. I'm sorry. Her house. I didn't and know where you were going is, with that. Uh, she has welcomed me as an orphan child into her place. So I am now recording from the palatial lovely Linda studios and living with her currently. So yeah, it was a good weekend. Oh, are, are you no longer in Plymouth meeting? I am not, sir. I am in Sellersville. Now, I got to know a new fucking city that you live in. Good. Right. Lord. Come on. Yeah. On this particular episode of breaking cafe, with Bowden and Barry, we are going to the rings of Portland, Oregon. You know what that means? Kevin Orcutt's ears just popped up. Barry. We are going to June 25th, 1983 in Portland at the arena as it's the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington, Rip Oliver, and the Assassin taking on Playboy Buddy Rose, Kurt Hennig, and Billy Jack. And this is a humdinger, Barry, I got to tell you. Uh, and you will hear Barry Rose later say that this might be his favorite match that we've ever covered. That is high praise indeed. Besides all that, we're going to be offering up some other wrestling-related uh, opinions. We're going to be talking about the death of Lenny Poffo. We're going to be offering up... Barry Rose's choice for a main event that he's going to book and promote. We're going to have a little food talk. Barry Rose has got a little bit of everything, my man. We do. This is it. And, and Jeff, I got a couple of I things. I'm going to be joined by our friend Mike Rogers. Holy shit, I almost forgot that. Great Mike Rogers, who really, what a what a nice guy he is. But Jeff, Publish a, writer Mike Rogers. Well, he's in good company with you, right? You've got <laughs> two books. How, by the way, how's that third book looking? Well, it's still on my computer. That's all I'm going to say. Mike, the author of Katie Bar the Door, the history of Portland wrestling, highly recommended. The wife got it for me for the holidays. Yeah. So with that, is this the book is on the computer? Is this the same computer that turns completely white screen for you? On occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Little advice is a good friend, Jeff. May want to back that up or at least get it off, get it on a hard drive. Something. Well, you know, it's just a hard safe. drive. But anyway, go ahead. Sir, I have heard your rants when your computer turns to white screen. If you lose that book, this will be the most epic rant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's history the history of rants. You're going to want to hear. That is shit you're going to want to hear, but uh, got a couple of messages this week, and I wanted to share. They directly correlate with something from the show, so I thought we should what, share. What? Yeah, so one was from our old friend Ben James, obviously of Ben and Kelly, or as we call him, Ken and Belly, but uh, there was a big autograph show. When I say big, let's put it in the context of something big in Punta Gorda, Florida, but they had a, uh, I guess a comic con, a fan show down there. And there wasn't a lot of, a lot of talent per se, but Jerry, the King Lawler was on this show. So Ben and I were in discussion and as everybody that listens to the show knows that Ben and I work with getting talent for the Friday night Q and A's at the live wrestling show. And that's something that Ben does. Uh, and I work, you know, alongside of him, but really it's Ben's baby. And Ben said, what do you think? Do you think we can get Jerry Lawler? And I said, you know, I, I, I've heard that he's not cheap, 
But if he's doing this show at, in Punta Gorda, I mean, you know, I mean, let's be honest, right? There, there's not a million people going to walk through these doors. Maybe there's a chance we could get him. And if I'm correct, I want to say Jerry lives not too far from Jerry Jarrett in, uh, I guess, somewhere in Fort Myers, Sanibel, Captiva, Cape Coral. Well, what are you trying area. to say? Lawler could sleep on Jarrett's <laughs> couch? Is that what you're saying? No, no. What I'm saying is I think they actually live near each other. And okay. in my head, I'm going, wait, if Lawler can drive over. This is no plane ticket, no hotel. Maybe we can make this happen. So Ben and I were communicating for a couple of weeks about this. And then the day before, and he goes, what should I, you know, and we were trying to come up with different scenarios, but we, we obviously want to be respectful, didn't want to insult Lawler. So Ben, Ben shows up at the fan fest. He goes over to Lawler's table. I think he spends some money at the table and has a conversation with him. And Ben explains about the fan fest and what we do. And Lawler looks at him and says, uh, he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, why don't you do this? Why don't you call my agent? Lo and behold, the guy that I, I ranked on three weeks ago, it's fucking Lawler's agent. So he hands Ben a paper. It's got the guy's name and phone number. Ben texts me and goes, motherfucker. Just like that. <laughs> so as it goes, we probably won't be seeing Jerry Lawler at any future fan fest, sadly. But another story. Yeah, I thought you were going to spring something on uh, not only the listeners, but me. And I was about to go, you motherfucker. You didn't tell me that before we started recording. Oh, so. I, uh, I, I got to tell you, I would love to have Jerry Lawler at a fan fest. And uh, uh, yeah, but I, I just as of now, I don't think it's going to happen. I think, too, and I don't want to belabor this point. I think that. With wrestlers taking agents now, and there really is only a couple. Dylan Hines is, I believe, another one that's trying to do this to become an agent. But this one guy who's based out of the Carolinas essentially is the agent. And I think this is going, again, this is a great thing for the boys because they're getting more money than they've ever gotten, et cetera. Of course, the flip side is if he turns down dates and they don't get something else in that spot, as we discussed also, that's a big issue. But everybody else suffers, and it's the promoter of events, not the agent, but the promoter of the event suffers, and the fans are going to suffer. And I think this is going to be a big story in the next year to two years, and I think something's going to have to give. So we'll wait and see. The second one was our old friend Paul Boudreaux, who lives up in Canada. Got a beautiful dog. I believe the dog's name is Arkham. Uh, he's a dog guy. And he sends me a little messages. Batman, a little Batman angle on the, uh, the pet Absolutely, name. which is really fucking cool, right? So he sends me a message in our USB up the dick story last week. Got a lot of play privately because I got messages. Uh, a couple of people reached out and said that they haven't heard us have that much fun in quite a while. We really did embrace the USB cord up the dick hole. So, uh, so we get a, I get a message from Paul Brudreau and I, of course, asked permission if I could share this story. And, uh, he had gone on a first date with a young lady last week. And, uh, one of the, they were, I guess they were out, they were having dinner and, and she asked him, what does he do when he goes to the camp by himself? And apparently there's a camp out in the wilderness and Paul will go out there and spend a couple of days. I don't know if he's got the tent. I don't know if exactly, but he said one of the things he really likes to do is listen to his Jeff quote unquote favorite podcast. And, uh, and that's us. And uh, he's good to know that some people feel that way about us. 
Well, yeah, even though we don't always don't make it on YouTube, right? At least in Canada, out in camps, we're huge. So, uh, so what he does, if he goes on a hike or he's sitting by the fire, he breaks it out. And what he says he likes about our show is that we've got, we've got a great variety and Paul finds us funny as hell. And I'm quoting him on that one. So we do thank Paul for that. And as their dinner was over and he was taking her home, and remember, Jeff, this is a first date. <laughs> no, he Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, uh, clip. That, <laughs> he played on a first date with somebody. He's playing the clip, but to his defense, she said, I really want to hear this. Can you play it? So Paul, Paul breaks, breaks out the He's podcast. A gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. And, uh, and it is. So, uh, so he texts me. He's messaging me. It's after midnight in New Brunswick, Canada. And he Shout basically. Shout out to all our listeners in New Brunswick. Absolutely. Absolutely. They started listening to the, uh, the podcast and apparently she told him that he had to pull over because it was icy out and the roads were dangerous and they were laughing so hard that they couldn't keep their focus on the road. So they're on the side of the road. She is laughing, uh, apparently in stitches laughing, and says to him, oh, my God, play that one again about the USB cord up the dickhole. So they listen to it again. They're still laughing. I think, and Paul has been a loyal listener, I believe, since day one. I think we now have a new loyal listener. And, Paul, I know Jeff, Sweet Lou, myself, we're all pulling for you with this young lady as well. So shout out to Paul and his young lady. Did, it, did he say what the young lady's name was? He did not. He's very, very smart. He did not give me her name, Jeff. All right. That's uh, probably exactly. Thing. But uh, if she is, in fact, a new listener, let me just say, <clears throat> welcome to Breaking Kayfabe. With Bowdrin and Barry. That was my sexy voice, Barry. That was very sexy, actually. Yeah. Anyway, now on that note, Barry, now this is not such a smooth segue. Why don't we go to our Match of the Week discussion with our friend Mike Rogers? Very time for our Match of the Week discussion. And our Match of the Week this week, we are going to the rings of Portland, Oregon. And it's a six-man tag as the Dynamite Kid, Rip Oliver, the Assassin, part of the clan, if you will, take on Buddy Rose, a newly turned Buddy Rose, Kurt Hennig, and Billy Jack. It is from June 25th, 1983, six-man tag. And to discuss this, uh, we have with us, no, not Kevin Orcutt, it's Mike Rogers. Mike, welcome back to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Barry, wow, this match was really good stuff. I really like this. You know, it's been a hot tick since we've been back to Portland. Before we go to Mike for a little bit of historical context on what was going on in Portland at this time, uh, discussion of this match in general from his point of view, what did you think of this match, Barry Rose? So what episode is this, Jeff? What are we on? 642. So which means, Mike, to put this into context, we've done 642 match reviews. It seems that like that. This <laughs> might be my favorite match we have ever done or the best match. This match is unbelievable. And I don't know who I'm more impressed with. Is it this young Kurt Hennig, who was also the Pacific Northwest heavyweight champion at the time? Is it Buddy Rose, who is literally everywhere uh, just doing cutting great promos? And almost slender Buddy Rose. Yeah, four-star matches. 
Is it Rip Oliver, who's a great heel? Is it the Dynamite Kid, who was almost untouchable at this stage of his career? This match has everything. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I sat down to watch this match. And I've never been, and Mike, we've discussed this previously, I've never been a huge fan of these two out of three fall matches where the guys are doing interviews between falls. I got to tell you, this match blew everything we had seen away. I just was struck. Even Billy Jack Haynes, who is, and Billy Jack looks stiff as shit, right? Looks like he is just potatoing guys left and right. Even his interview style comes off as abrupt and choppy. Like just everything about him is he's going to punch you right in the face. But to me, the real revelations here, first off, Rip Oliver and Jeff, you and I were talking about this off air. And you said, he goes, what was the deal with Rip Oliver? Why why wasn't he a bigger star? We saw him in Florida as a rookie, and then he came back in 85, but he didn't get much of a push. Texas didn't get much of a push. It looks like his only true career push occurred in, in the Pacific Northwest. But I'll tell you what, somebody dropped the fucking ball. Rip Oliver's great. But when you see Kurt Hennig, Buddy Rose, and Dynamite Kid – these three guys could have worked anywhere in the entire country, in my opinion, and drawn money at this stage. Absolutely fantastic. I love the match. I love the post-match angle. And I don't want to give away too much, but I'm going to give away a little bit. because that's Well, it was away. almost 40 years ago, Barry. All right. Well, I know, but I'm going to go to the ending because, to me, this was a fucking masterpiece, Mike. Literally a masterpiece. They give Kurt Hennig what's essentially a spike pile driver, and it's all three of the heels giving him the pile driver. It looks dangerous as shit because I I went back and rewound this and watched it. It looks like his head hits the mat. He is laying completely unconscious in the ring. They bring out the uh, the stretcher that Rip Oliver had, the clan carrier service or whatever they were calling it. But what I thought was cool. The three heels all went up to a turnbuckle and sat on the turnbuckle. And one of the announcers, and I think it was Dutch Savage, said they're like vultures. And that's exactly what it looked like. To me, that was a great visual moment right there. I really can't say enough about this match and the ending angle of this as well. Five stars, 100%. Okay, well, uh, Mike, I'm sorry. Barry talked so long that we've run out yeah. of time. So. Have a great show, everyone. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, anyway, Mike, let's talk about uh, some stuff <laughs> leading up to this match. So you have the turn. Uh, I, I tell you what, I'm jumping ahead here. Dynamite Kid shows up into the Portland uh, wrestling territory approximately when? Um, earlier that year in 83. Uh, I'm going to try and glance here. Probably about June, perhaps a little bit earlier. And the one thing that I I remember as he and Kurt, Kurt Henning had been here, you know, uh, off and on for a couple of years. Um, so he, you didn't, you knew he was improving because of fir- his first run, he was just strictly in preliminaries. And now he's come back and he, he's a little bit um, bigger build. He's getting better. But yet you've seen him and you don't realize that he's really jumped to that upper echelon. 
And then I um, happened to read in Meltzer, it, it, he said, uh, Dynamite Kid and Kurt Henning are having the best matches in the in the world right now in in Portland. And I went, wow. You know, I mean, you know that Dynamite is super special. But I, I hadn't realized that Kurt was right there on that. You know, other people were seeing him on that level as well. And the rest of them, they're, you know, Buddy hasn't ballooned up too bad. He's, he can still work so well. Billy Jack looks great. And the, the people just love him here. And uh, Assassin is, he's just always solid. So you really, you really have a, that window of time where every one of these guys are really special. Well, and, you know, it, let me just ask you for, for, context when you're talking about this period fair to say this was like the last really i'm going to put in these terms special period of portland wrestling because it was you know going on for a few more years but i mean i'm talking about the reaction of the crowd the crowd is just absolutely insane and you know i know that when buddy had turned uh earlier and uh attacked rip oliver they did the whole thing where the crowd jumps in, or all the kids jump into the ring with Buddy and, and you know, uh, Buddy's uh, high-fiving all the kids and stuff like that. Was this sort of the last great moments of Portland wrestling to that level at least? You know, they had there was one more good run in like 88 when we had uh, – when Roddy Piper took over a little bit of the booking duties and he was on camera a little bit as well, 88, 89. Oh, would that they, be the Beetlejuice stuff? Yeah, Beetlejuice, okay. Scotty the Body, Southern Rockers, Grappler. There, there was quite uh, Scott Norton, Brian Adams. There was quite a bit of talent there, but definitely there was a lull between '83 this time period and '87, '88. There was a, a big valley right in through there. '85 and eight, the first part of '86 was just really bad, really bad. Yeah. So uh, again, to set up what happens here. So, uh, Buddy splits from the clan. He brings in the dynamite kid to be his partner. Uh, and these clips are out there on YouTube. And then what happens is dynamite ends up turning on Buddy. So now dynamite officially joins the clan with Rip Oliver and with the, uh, the assassin Dave Sierra, uh, which sets up this six man tag. So as you look back on this match, Mike, uh, tell the folks what your what your memories of this match were. Uh, did you first of all did you see it live when it happened on television? I imagine yes. I, I'm pretty sure that I did see it live. The one as I rewatched it here in the last day or two, the one thing that struck me is how wrestling has changed in the last 40 years. You know, you have top talent here, and if you see a, a top talent, you know, a six man that's going on now. Nobody's staying in the ring, you know, and here you have Dynamite Kid, who we've always considered one of the top high flyers in wrestling history, and he'll only go out of the ring once, maybe twice in a match, you know, and and what we see now is people are spending more time outside the ring, and it's just the way wrestling's changed, and also... The other thing that I, I noticed was just some realistic pin attempts. I think in one of the falls, there was just a body slam. Rip came off the top rope, and he kind of – I don't think he did exactly what he wanted to do. He stomps on his shoulder, and that was the pin, a body slam and a stomp on the shoulder. You know, And, and to me, that just seems more realistic than – 
10 pile drivers and whatever, and they're still kicking out. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when you talk about this match, you know, one of the, you talk about dynamite and his high flying style and everything. What, one of the things that I always appreciated about dynamite is, you know, nowadays, fairly or not, when you see guys that are, uh, that do the flying stuff, so often it seems like, okay, I'm going to go up to the top rope and, and do a move, whether it's to the floor, uh, to somebody on the mat. And let's just say there doesn't seem to be a, a quickness to the maneuver. They kind of take their time. And like you sit there and you watch the guy in the mat. He's kind of like, okay, come on. Let's do the move. I'm lying here. There is no wasted motion with the dynamite kid. He, you know, like when he's going to hit that move, he gets to the top rope quick as a tick and boom, he's, he's on that opponent on the mat. And that is one of the things, Mike, that I always appreciated about the dynamite kid was just how quick, you know, not just his flying stuff, but just how quick he was in his moves. Oh, exactly. And, and when he would deliver a, a suplex, you know, you just, you just go, wow, that, you know, looks so impressive. And his knee drops on, on guys' head in this match, you know, it's just like, you know, it really makes you a believer right there. For oh, yeah, no, he, he was, uh, he appeared, whether he was or not, he appeared to be laying everything in. Uh, this was not like, you know, like, oh, he, he kind of really missed that guy. Uh, I didn't see any of that. So, uh, let's talk about, you know, we mentioned the whole, Rip Oliver is head of the clan here, okay? So comparatively speaking, compare the height and uh, I won't say popularity uh, and being over with Buddy Rose as head of the clan with Rip Oliver being over as head of the clan. How is it the same? How is it different? How is it better? How is it worse? That kind of thing. Buddy had been gone and he came back and he thought he was just going to take over the clan again. And Rip had been leader of the clan, you know, the time period that Buddy was gone. And so he he said, nope, I'm the leader now. You know, we can still work together, but I'm the leader. And and you always kind of saw Buddy as the leader because he'd been the original leader um, and Rip as, as one of the underneath guys. But when Rip took over, you know, it, he was very, very solid and people really perceived him as a top guy. Otherwise, I don't think any of this would have worked. You know, I saw a match with Rip Oliver and teaming with Bruiser Brody against the Road Warriors. And I believe it was the only time the Road Warriors met Brody. And this was in one of the Portland special shows. And the match was very short. It went under five minutes. But the one person, you know, I was very excited to see the Road Warriors and Brody. And then the one person that I came away most impressed with was Oliver, because he was just working his butt off, you know, trying to make an impression maybe with those guys. So he was very, very solid. And uh, like you mentioned, definitely unheralded, you know, in other other parts of the of the country when he went. And Mike, in looking at Billy Jack Kane's too, and this is about uh, maybe a year or so before he wound up in the state of Florida, he does look different. What was Billy Jack, and what, what year did he start? He started in 81. Gotcha. So he's got about two years under his belt here? Right, yes. Gotcha. So what was he like in his early days? And Billy, again, is, as I referenced in this match, there's he's not the smoothest worker. It looks like he's potatoing the crap out of everybody. But that kind of continued throughout his entire career. Was it even worse when he was first breaking in, as I assumed it probably would be? 
you know, it probably was. Um, he came off when he started so humble, and that really lended to his popularity. He he was so popular here, and um, you know, years later in eighty eight and eighty nine, when he turned heel here, he was so brutally honest that people just hated him. Then he was a at least in Portland, he was a great babyface and maybe even a greater heel. And it was definitely definitely his interviews because he at first he was quiet and humble, you know, and and he'd show fire when he needed to, but usually it was just that that quiet quiet style. Yeah, so, cuz has any, I'm sorry Jeff, has no, no, anyone has anyone heard from him or anything about him? As I think we talked during your last appearance, he has been off the radar. Uh, there were some people concerned uh, that he's missing again. Billy, over the last decade, it, it's you know been a little wacky, to put it mildly. Any word whatsoever about him, Mike? I do know that Greg Oliver has had some contact with him within the last two weeks. Ah, okay. And I think Billy may be trying to explore a, a project with Greg Oliver. Okay. Thank you very much. So I was going to ask you, you mentioned Buddy had been out of the area for a while. Is that when Buddy did his run in New York? I believe so, yes. Okay. And uh, talking about Billy, when Billy first came on the scene, uh, you know, given the uh, the name Billy Jack, uh, and boy, I feel really old because I'm wondering how many of our young listeners even know about the movie Billy Jack. But who gave him that gimmick? Do you know? Was it Don? I if you know. I imagine, yeah, I'm not certain. Probably Don. I'm not sure. It could have been Billy himself. So this match, I saw, I actually reached out to our friend Kevin Orcutt, Barry, and I asked him how long, of course, at the end of the match, uh, Dynamite suspended for one month for his actions in this match, which, uh, uh, what happens, and this was kind of unique, the spike pile driver, uh, usually you're expecting the broken neck angle, but instead what happened here was that Kurt Hennig, they said his voice box was injured, so he couldn't speak. So he had to he had to write everything down. Uh, it's kind of a unique angle, I thought. But um, So Dynamite is gone for a, a month. He comes back. He ends up staying until, uh, according to Kevin, the day after Christmas in 1983, Dynamite Kid was part of the clan until the end, Bear? Or, uh, Mike, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was healed the whole time, definitely. Okay, yeah. So uh, so we're going to post a link to this match. Barry Rose said in all our episodes, this might be his favorite match we've ever done. That is high praise again. Uh, Mike, hey, man, we want to thank you again for uh, for joining us and discussing this time in Portland wrestling. Uh, good, good stuff. We'll post a link to this match in our group, Breaking k with Bowdrin and Barry. Check it out because uh, I think this is definitely as good as the matches, and the match is really good. I think all three of us agree. The Just the incredible heat at ringside. I mean, these fans are going crazy. Good stuff. We hope you'll check it out. And, Mike, thanks once again for joining us, buddy. Oh, thank you. So, Barry, unfortunately, we need to discuss, uh, at the time we're recording this, we had just received the news that the Poet Laureate of the WWE, the man that I knew before the WWE as leaping Lanny Poffo. Barry, just uh, what are some of your memories uh, of Lanny Poffo that, uh, that come to mind? So I, I think my most positive – well, I, actually, I'll give you a personal one. There was an event run in Tampa – 
2015, I believe. It was 2015, and it was Jody Simon. Hard to believe it's almost eight years ago. And Jody Malenko held a charity event. I think it was at the JCC in Tampa, and he did it as he was trying to raise funds to to put up a wall at the old Fort Homer Hesterly, which the JCC had bought. So he, he held a fundraiser and had probably, I'll say, 30 to 50 talents there. And the majority were retired. There were some current WWE guys that were there. Was it, wasn't that the, wasn't that the night that everyone found out that Dusty had died? Yes. It was June 15th. Right. June, was it June 15th, 2015, I think, or June something, 2015. But yes, you're right about that. That, that really kind of just took out the steam of a lot, but Lanny was there and, uh, there were some big talents there. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the people that were there have since passed on, but I had, you've seen those CWF Rolodex cards that I have, Jeff, and I had two of Angelo Poffo. So being the young Mark that I was in those days, Jeff, I brought the additional to give to Lanny, figuring a nice gesture and, uh, he was, I think he was headed to his table or something and I caught up and I introduced myself quickly and I handed it to him and he goes, what is this? And I explained what it was and he was so sincere in his gratitude of me giving him this of his parents. And that was something I always got from, uh, Lanny and Randy was how much they, they truly loved their parents. Like there was a lot of posting about them, even in death as they had passed, they would always remember them. And he was very appreciative and very honest, but in ring and, and from a wrestling career perspective, I think with Lanny, it was everything prior to the WWE. And he was kind of, in some ways, an innovator. If you go back to the late 70s, he was known as, obviously, Leaping Lanny Poffo, but he was he was a high flyer. He was doing some stuff that normally you would not see. And I saw what I think was his first match in the WWE at Madison Square Garden. It would have been 1985, and I was actually there. And uh, I want to say he wrestled... I want to say the missing link, but I don't think that's right. But he wrestled Terry Funk that night, as I I think who he wrestled. And he wound up doing the job. But he was – there was something unique about him. And I think, you know, if you look at his style and what he was doing – it's probably not the easiest guy to book in a lot of ways either. It's like, who do you put him up with and who do you match him with, marry him with? And, and who's he going to get over with? And I don't know if Lanny ever truly got over great in the WWE. I think for a lot of younger people, they look at the genius and they, they, they love it. They love the poets, uh, the, the poems and, you know, all of that, the cap and gown. But I know that he was signed by WCW. When uh Randy was signed, and I, I want to say he worked like a handful of matches, but got paid for a couple of years. That's a great gig if you can get it right, Jeff. But almost but Jeff, almost like a beefcake gig, you know. Almost like I, but I think even beefcake even did more. Yeah. Strangely enough, it just seemed like like Lanny really didn't do much. And I remember reading, and it was most likely the Observer, where uh he had signed a contract. It was a multi-year contract, and I think worked a handful of dates and was making I don't know a hundred and something thousand dollars a year. To me, that's, you know, that's, that, that's a great gig if you can get it, but very sad. And Lanny, as of yesterday or the day before, was in New York City and, uh, was posting photos of his time in New York. He had gone to see the Broadway show Wicked and had gone out to dinner and done some other things. And, uh, 
he was he looked healthy. He looked great. Apparently, this was a unexpected heart attack, though I don't know if they're expected, you know, but it was a heart attack he had. He passed away. So, you know, the reality is it, it's very sad because here's a guy that was in New York and appeared to be having the time of his life, just having a blast. And uh, I will tell you that I, I believe he died at some point yesterday or the night before, and it may have been overnight. I reached out to uh, someone who shall remain nameless that was very good friends with him and said that they have, they heard this yesterday, but because his immediate family had not been notified, they were not making any sort of announcement. So, yeah, rest in peace, Lanny Poffo. Yeah, uh, any kind of history with CWF? No, nothing. Angelo did, which is interesting. Angelo did and Randy did. Lanny never did, though. Yeah. So uh, a, a guy that you had ever reached out to about coming to one of the fan fests? Just curious. We did. And uh, we were too late. And, and what that meant was he lived in and around Tampa for many years. And two, three years ago, he moved to Ecuador. So hmm. without knowing that, I reached out to him and I said, hey, we're doing a show. And I explained stuff. And he said, oh, I'd love to do it. He said, you cool flying me in from Ecuador. <laughs> it's like, it's like no. Things are, are just a snap of his fingers. <laughs> exactly. So it just never worked out based off of the fact that he wasn't in our country any longer. But rest in peace, Lanny. So, you know, with Lanny Poffo, of course, people, when you mention the name, fans will say, oh, he was the guy that was the poet in the WWF. Uh, you have people. Uh, that will say, oh, of course, I remember the story about what he supposedly could do with the auto fellatio, which, of course, uh, reminds me of a great George Carlin joke of uh, why do dogs lick their balls? Uh, because they can. So, uh, you know, but uh, great George Carlin. Love George Carlin. But for me, Lanny Poffo, I remember very early in my wrestling fandom, uh, I want to say Lanny uh, like late seventies uh, that he started. I'm just doing the ref top of my head. I think it was mid to late. Yeah. Okay. But I went to a show when I was visiting my, uh, my grandparents in South Carolina. Uh, I want to say it was 77, 78 ish, something like that. And down at the end of the street, uh, from where they lived, they had sort of a, uh, a military, uh, sort of like an armory or a community center, something like that. And they were having a wrestling show. And uh, for whatever reason, I remember that Ray Candy, Charlie Cook, and Lanny Poffo were on this show. Wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so a, a very random, you know, I'm sure it was like the def definition of a spot show. Uh, I don't know if those guys were all working for Mid-Atlantic. Maybe it was a, a Georgia spot show. I'm not sure. But uh, so, yeah, so I saw Lanny very early on. And then, of course, he became a part of a tag team with his dad. And I thought they were a, they were a good tag team. You know, he, like you said, he had a, a certain thing about him that would, you, you'd put him on the card, but then like, you know, like, okay, what do I do with this guy? You know, he's not the only person, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, like Adrian Street, I think was that kind of thing, like where he had a gimmick where, you know, you want him on the card because it's a great gimmick, but okay, now what do I do with him? You know, and, and right. I think in a, in a bit of a way, Lanny's uh, gimmick was like that too. Now in ICW, of course, he was pushed, uh, pushed for years as the, their lead babyface, and the guy he feuded with was Randy, who uh, people in, up in uh, the ICW territory did not realize uh, or chose to not believe uh, that they were brothers. Uh, but he had a tremendous run there. And was a headliner at a very small promotion, a guy that worked in a lot of different promotions before he finally got to the WWF. And 
You know, he did the whole poet laureate thing, which was, uh, you know, let's not kid ourselves. That was a gimmick that kind of got over, you know, maybe not as necessarily a wrestler, but it was a guy that the character got over. You think that's fair, Bear? It is. The character did because I think, A, it was unique, and there was a – and I say this with all due respect as well – there was a certain cheesiness aspect to it. Yeah. That I think – and I think it's similar in some ways to maybe Honky Tonk Man. You know, you couldn't really take it too seriously, but at the same time, they both got over. No, I mean, there are are characters that, uh, you know, they get over uh, based on – as you said, that's a good word, cheesiness. And I'm sure those aren't the only two guys that uh, had a character that got over because they were kind of cheesy or or maybe it was a character that sort of appealed to the kids uh, and, you know, they could sell action figures or or Frisbees, uh, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a great, a great gimmick and stuff like that. But uh, so, no, I uh, Randy, uh, Lanny Poffo, uh, as I said, though, my, my first memory is always that uh, show where I first saw Lanny on, uh, you know, like you said, rest in peace. And geez, Barry, the Poffos, are they all gone now? They're all gone. I, the mother, Angelo, the first to go, Randy, uh, the mother, the matriarch of the family passed away, I guess, two or three years ago. And Lanny, I believe, I, I think Lanny does have a daughter, if I'm correct. Okay. But I, I don't believe she has anything to do with professional wrestling in any form. So yeah. I think as far as wrestling, I think it's over. So, but to the, uh, memory of Lanny Poffo and the, uh, the four members of the Poffo family, uh, we raise an adult beverage to their memory. Rest in peace, uh, poet laureate of the WWF, Lanny Poffo. You know, Barry, I should say last week when we were talking about the, uh, AEW and the, uh, uh, buy low, sell high, a couple of guys that we did not mention that we probably should have, uh, number one is Swerve Strickland. Definitely is a guy that I see having a big future uh, and a guy that I think they're going to push near the top of the card in AEW. What say you? I, I don't think there's any doubt that Swerve Strickland to me. And this guy's always been good, Jeff. I, I first saw him when he was kill shot with Lucha Underground. And then when he went to the Federation, uh, I didn't realize who it was. And somebody had clued me in. But where is he lacking here? He's got great in-ring skills, and a lot of the stuff he does to me is kind of revolutionary in the sense it's uh, very original. And then his promos, there is this sinister kind of heel. I just think he's a really unique character and has really, really good matches. So I, I would agree. That's, that's maybe even top of the list right there. Yeah, he definitely uh, – he's got that sinister uh, air that has uh, – and I'm going to compare this – to someone else and it's high, you know, high praise from me. He's got that MJF ability to come off like a real asshole and not, I don't think every heel, you know, some guys, they come off like they're acting like heels. He comes off like he really is an asshole. And if you're a heel, that's, that's gotta be a positive bear. Yeah. And they've, they're obviously seeing money with him because he's getting the time. I guess what I'm not sold on is the, his, his henchmen. And, you know, I want to think that there are great plans down the road for the three of them, that it's going to play into it. But I, you know, right now, I know the one guy's got really limited ability. The other guy, I, Trench Mouth or Trench, whatever his name is, he's yeah. kind of kind of an unknown commodity. Got a good look, obviously, with the multiple face tattoos. Yeah, that was that was a good decision oh. one Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, I'll call and make you do some fun. 
fucked up shit. But uh, at the same time, swerve on his own. And I kind of liked that team with Keith Lee. I know that there was uh, some people that were grousing and complaining about it, but I liked it. These guys who were completely different, they weren't getting along. You knew the end was going to come. I kind of wish it had gone even a little bit longer, but I agree with you. I, I think Swerve Strickland is, I think the potential is unlimited currently for him. Yeah, you know, the one guy that you mentioned is not having, uh, you know, the guy that's not Trench or, or whatever. Uh, his, uh, his name is Parker, I want to say Bordeaux, Boudreaux or Bordeaux, yes. something like that. Uh, a guy that signed out of high school with my beloved Notre Dame fighting Irish, by the way, oh. uh, and then left and he played a couple seasons at, uh, I think either UCF, Central Florida or South Florida, one of those two teams. Uh, so he's got like some legit athletic background, you know, and, uh, We'll see if he progresses and, and things like that. But, you know, much like uh, the WWE going for guys with legitimate athletic backgrounds. Speaking of a legitimate background, very smooth segue as always. Another guy that we saw last week that I, I'll be honest, I've never seen this guy. And when I saw him walking down to the ring, just the way that Timothy Thatcher made his entrance. He's, he's wearing like this robe and he had this, I'm not fucking around <laughs> look to him. And he went in, he took off the, uh, the robe. He kind of, you know, he doesn't physically look terribly imposing. And then he just started fucking tying Danielson up in knots. Very impressive, Barry. He absolutely is too. This is the guy that I caught on NXT and, uh, he was a heel and then they turned him babyface and he was teaming with Champa. I believe he was all part of those cuts that occurred within the last year. Kind of fell off the radar in the U.S. I believe in, in watching AEW that he had made a name for himself over in Noah, but I think within the first 90 seconds of the match, they were already comparing him to Billy Robinson and that Robinson, I guess it's been time with him in Japan or wherever it was. And immediately I was hooked. And yeah, Timothy Thatcher, here's another guy. And this is a guy, I think the beauty of this, Jeff, and this is kind of like the Samoa Joes of the world, the Walters or Gunthers, uh, even Swerve Strickland, guys who don't look cookie cutter. You know, it, it's like, have we finally gotten away from this cookie cutter mold of where all these guys almost always look alike. And Thatcher is a unique individual. I can't really compare him to anybody, but I can tell you if he's on AEW, I'm going to be tuning in for sure. Well, I'll compare him to somebody. He has the personality of a William slash Steven Regal back in the day with WCW, but his look, he's physically very similar to Zack Sabre Jr. What do you think of that comparison? Uh, yeah, that's not a bad comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's a guy that I definitely would like, uh, to see somewhere here in the near future, uh, a report that the AEW has signed him to a contract because I think that's a guy that he can definitely, uh, make them money. So as I was thinking all this, Barry, I'm going to spring this one on you unannounced. Uh-oh. I had been thinking about this. So Barry Rose, I'm making you Tony Khan. All right. It's your promotion. And you are the booker because, you know, nobody can tell you what to do. So I'm going to give you six months to promote a pay-per-view event that you want to make lots of money on. But with the caveat that you want to have somebody that can wrestle, somebody that can draw money, uh, you know, the whole the proverbial whole package. OK, right. And when I first started this, I started thinking, well, 
would you rather have Brett or Sean back in the day? You know, that whole Brett Sean discussion. Sure. But then I decided to widen the scope. So I'm going to give you one guy from this list, Barry Rose. And I'm going to give you one of these guys in their prime, whichever years in your mind that might be. Okay. What is the one guy that you're taking to give you six months worth of promos with a guarantee that come the pay-per-view, they're going to absolutely fucking deliver for you uh, as far as at the box office and in the ring and everything leading up to the pay-per-view, okay? All right, but let me ask you one one question. Is this this person is not going to work any matches until the actual pay-per-view? No, I mean, he can work matches until then. Okay, he's, okay. Yeah. gotcha, all right. Shawn Michaels, huge asshole. Uh, great performer. Is that your asshole? Is that was that your quote? Uh, I think uh, asshole, something like good that. Good worker, big douchebag, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So uh, anyway, go back to episode forty-seven. I think that's where Barry first said that. The aforementioned Bret Hart, Ric Flair, Brian Danielson, Terry Funk, oh. or Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, it's so painful. Here's the thing. First of all, in the ring, all these guys are good. Yeah, and I, for reasons uh, that, you know, I'm just making this a talking point. I wanted to include uh, your work rate and all that kind of stuff and the fact that you're going to have a good match. So I, I did include your your Hulk Hogan's or or people like that, and, and I deliberately left out The Rock and Steve Austin. I'm just out of this list right here. Who's the guy that you think is going to deliver the goods for you with six months of lead-up time? And we're looking and just going off of what you said, this is a person who's in their prime. Yep. So I'm looking at the best. <sighs> this this absolutely pains me to say this, but it is the huge asshole, the douchebag. And why is that? Because I think his popularity at, at, his, at his peak was absolutely huge. And he had a way of connecting. And I look, I know Terry Funk did, and I know, but Terry, guys like Terry Funk and Nick Bockwinkle are also going to appeal to the hardcore audience. And if I'm looking for high buy rates, I'm not going to look just for the internet or the smart marks. I'm going to look for the largest possible audience. And I think Shawn Michaels, who look, all again, huge douchebag. Even to this day, apparently, still a big dick. He can go fuck himself, Jeff. But with it, he's not looking so much like a sexy boy, though. No, sexy, sexy, great, great grandfather. At, at this point, he just looks Potter? like a, Potter, father. I don't know. I'm drunk. What do you want? He, but, maybe he looks like Colonel Potter. Is that what you were trying to say? Colonel Potter. There you go. But he, uh, you know, he was able to deliver good promo. In-ring work was fantastic for the most part, but he did have a, a huge appeal. And the appeal, the women loved him, kids idolized him, and guys thought he was pretty fucking cool. I think if I'm looking for buy rates, which it would be the end result of this, I think Shawn Michaels is going to deliver the biggest buy rates. That's my guess. My, my, my runner-up to that might be Flair if I'm going on a personal level. And not, not so con, and I think Tony Khan does that. I think Tony Khan does a lot of shit on a personal level. It would be Terry Funk or Danielson. So let's take a look at the pros and cons here of each individual. You're right. What you said about Sean. And by the way, I saw, I saw a clip someone posted from, uh, from years ago where Sean was wrestling. I think he was wrestling Austin and. During the match, Sean was uh, down on the ring, and Austin was kind of putting the boots to him. I'm, I'm thinking this might have been before the turn, where Austin was still the heel here. 
and Sean was down and a young man who was uh, mentally challenged jumped over the ring uh, or the guardrail and tried to get in the ring. And the security was trying to, you know, keep them from from going anywhere near the ring, you know, which is absolutely their job. And Sean sort of broke character, went down to the young man by the guardrail and helped security get him back over and was talking to the man, uh, you know, trying to calm him down and, and stuff like that. And then he rolled back in the ring. And, and, you know, to his credit, that was a cool thing for Sean to do. But. Do you have a concern if you're in this uh, uh, Tony Khan esque spot? Yes, you're going to get uh, a great match out of Sean. Yes, you're going to have good promos. Yes, he's over with the crowds. Yes, you're going to get a buy rate uh, on a pay-per-view. But are you concerned that Sean's going to do something in those six months because he's Sean to fuck things up, uh, get himself in some sort of trouble, be an overall headache, and possibly, eh, I'm going to say this, not that I've ever heard Sean would try to do this, but is Sean the, the kind of guy that's going to try to hold you up at the box office? And I don't think so. I don't think holding you up, I, I think the issues could certainly be apparent. And if we're looking at Sean in his prime, I mean, what a headache this guy was, right? In his mm-hmm. prime, he was. And that's always the question with Sean. Let's be there honest. There you go. And there you go. But in a lot of ways, can you substitute the name Sean Michaels with the name CM Punk? And just update it because it certainly seems, and look, there's a lot of stories. Who's responsible? Is it the, is it the Bucks and Omega? Is it CM Punk? Who knows? Maybe, you know, I, I don't know. And at this point, I don't want to even take sides, but CM Punk traditionally has always had some issues wherever he's gone. And sometimes these things have followed him around. He is self-righteous. So to that end, if I'm looking long term, I don't know if Shawn Michaels is the guy, and I don't think he is. If I'm talking, you know, the next six months, getting up to a pay-per-view and maybe immediately following right after, I think I would still go with Shawn Michaels. So out of this uh, list of six, who's the last guy that you're going to go with? Probably Bockwinkle, and let, definitely let me put that. Bockwinkle, who on this list may be, along with Danielson, the best pure wrestler. But I think from a widespread appeal, I think the thing with I, – I think when you look at wrestling now, especially if you look in AEW, it's almost a youth movement. And I realize there's an irony in saying that when Jarek goes on every week and he's like 52 years old. But – Overall, it does appear that the promotion is geared towards younger talent. They're trying. Whether they're succeeding, that's up for debate. But guys like the, the aforementioned Swerve Strickland, uh, you know, it, a bunch of these guys, Jungle Boy, MJF. I don't know. What is he? 25, 26? 27, I believe. Yeah. 27. He's the world champion. And I, I, in my opinion, a disappointing run thus far. How old is Moxley? Moxley's got to be in his mid to late thirties, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm, it's an open-ended question. I really don't know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, I, and that, that's my guess. I don't think he's hit 40 yet. But, look, your tag team champ, your world champion, 27, the tag team champions, how old are those guys? The acclaim, they're, they're young. They're, their big feud now is going to be with the gun club. These guys are young. There's a lot of young talent here, and I do like the mix of young and older talent. And I, Everything that I've read, whether this is accurate or not, is that a lot of the older talent is trying to take a mentor role to a lot of the young talent, especially guys like Daniel Bryan and Moxley come to mind. With that, I just don't see Bachwinkle in this current world 
being as huge a star. I, I think in the territory days, that was one thing. I think if it's uh, localized, that's another thing. But I don't know if a guy who might be in his 40s is – and Bockwinkle was always an adult. Like I never got the young kid vibe from Nick Bockwinkle. Anytime I saw him, he always came across as an adult. And I don't mean that well, to okay. just minimize sake, his talent though. Yeah, so, please. For the sake of argument, let's say you're not talking the 1985 version of Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, let's say you're talking – 35-year-old Nick Bockwinkle. He's had like, you know, 12, 15 years of experience because he started really young, okay? You've got the Nick Bockwinkle of like the early to mid-70s. Is that guy a, a potentially more attractive to you? Whereas I could understand you might have a trouble, you, you might have, you know, some trepidation about, uh, you know, pushing a mid-40s Bockwinkle. By the way, on a completely separate note, where since we're talking about age, I saw, I saw something on, online the other day. Did you know that uh, you you seen the movie Cocoon? Oh yeah, I love it. Wilford too. Brimley in Cocoon yes. the was this is the same age as Paul Rudd in the upcoming Ant Man movie that the, the, you see the trailers out now. They yeah. were the same age. And it's like it's kind of blows my mind. So anyway, getting back to Nick Bockwinkle. So if you're considering mid thirties Nick Bockwinkle, could you see doing something with Nick Bockwinkle at that age? And bringing it to today's crowd and selling it to today's crowd. I think you could try. I just, I don't know. And again, I realize there are going to be people that are going to disagree with this. And I don't mean this in any way as a knock on Bachwinkle's talent or ability to get over. I don't know if he is right for the AEW audience. And that's probably what I'm. No, no. And, and again, I'm interrupting. I apologize. I'm not saying this is an AEW card. Oh, okay. this is a very, this is a very Rose card. Ooh, that does change things. Uh, yeah, I, I still don't know. think so. I think that the wrestling audience currently is, it's a younger, internet driven, almost smart mark audience. And I think that's across the board. AEW, huge. WWE to some degree. But every single independent promotion, you know, PWG out in California, doesn't matter. Everything pardon me, is geared towards the internet. And I, and I think there is almost a youth movement. I could see Bachwinkle getting over. I wouldn't bring him in as a baby face, though. I would definitely bring him in as a smug, smarmy heel. Okay. So let, let's just uh, real quick go down the list here. Could you sell Brett to, to today's crowd? I think you would be able to, to some degree. Absolutely. I think heel Brett, uh, pro Canada Brett, to me, that was my favorite version of Brett. I, I mean, I've said that before. And I think that Brett could get over disgruntled, doing the disgruntled guy. Uh, you know, you people don't understand, uh, you know, values and all that kind of stuff. Oh my God. That today, especially, oh boy, that, that could be really good stuff. I think Ric Flair at today's crowd could definitely get over, but my concern with Flair, much like with Sean and, you know, you know, I said the thing about, uh, would he hold you up at the box office? That wasn't fair to Sean because, uh, it, it was more like, would Sean do something over the course of six months that would endanger it. Like would he be such an asshole in the back to somebody that he ended up getting punched out? And now he's his position or would he sustain one of those mysterious injuries that he, uh, he seemed to, every time you <laughs> yeah. called upon him to lose, he seemed to uh, somehow get an injury. And much like that flair, the concern is not flair, you know, getting out there and, and, you know, performing and stuff like that. And, and being like a million bucks, the concern is, 
everything we've heard about Ric Flair. Is Ric Flair going to do something in the six months outside the ring that's going to get either get himself, especially in today's climate, let's be honest, you know, Ric Flair wagging his dick at a stewardess, you know, maybe uh, 30 years ago, allegedly, 30 years ago wouldn't have been seen as a big deal. Now, all of a sudden, you're building up, you're, uh, you're two weeks out from the pay-per-view, and, oh, here's this story about Ric Flair wagging his dick at a, at a stewardess, and suddenly you got to change your main event. Is that a concern, Barry? Absolutely. It's a, uh, it's a, I mean, it, it, look, even Terry Funk was a fucking wild man at times, right? Well, I haven't got him yet. So, hold okay. On. Yeah. Yeah. But no, absolutely. It, I mean, it, Flair is a concern. And here's the other thing. Flair alleged, and I love the word allegedly, right? Allegedly, Flair got away with a lot of shit over the years. And in this world that we live in, it's much harder to get away with all this shit. So if I'm doing this at a current level, Ric Flair would be a huge concern for me. Yeah. So uh, now you just mentioned the Funker. What about Terry Funk? Where I mean, were you, you? You said he would be your second choice after Sean? No, I didn't. But it's I, I no. What I said was Danielson and Funk would be my two personal favorites. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But if I'm looking at it again, if I'm looking at it unobjectively from a business standpoint, uh. Terry Funk could because Terry Funk always had a way, much like Danielson, and I think this was the key, of really connecting with a crowd. And look, I I am biased towards Terry Funk and Danielson to some degree, but at the same time, who doesn't love Terry Funk? Where, you know, Terry Funk was still in the Federation in his 50s, Chainsaw Charlie and this other shit. It's I, I, I... The only thing I would say with Terry Funk, but if he's in his prime, it is a different story. Where was Terry Funk's flaw? I don't know because Terry Funk would, could have great matches and Terry Funk's promos were as compelling as could be. So I, I like, I like the inclusion of Terry on the list though. All right. So, uh, what about, uh, Brian Danielson? Again, a tough one right there. If I'm taking, and, th- and there may be a lot to it. Oh my God, Jeff, I just saw a photo of Madonna last night again. Oh, we're going to um, get to that. Okay. Oh my God. It, somebody did it and it's like, Oh, that's brutal. Danielson in his prime, my opinion, not his prime, but is the peak of his popularity would have been in the Federation. And I think he was primed before the injury to be at a level of, and I don't know if he would have hit that level, but somewhere of the Hulk Hogan, the Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, he was going to be the next big breakout star in the Federation. And I'll never forget, this was only a couple of weeks before the retirement, if I'm correct, but he brought all these fans in the ring and they're doing the yes. And the whole the whole arena, 20,000 people, whatever's there, it was literally electric, to be cliche. So... I think the popularity of Danielson at his peak, that that might be my number two here. But on a personal level, again, it would come down to Danielson or Funk if I wasn't so concerned with the finances. So uh, I didn't include this guy, but because you watched more of that era than I did, bigger deal uh, using the uh, story that you just used with him bringing all the people in and – Bigger store, bigger guy potentially, let's just say, because you, you talked about, you know, if not for the injury, would Danielson have ended up being bigger than Cena? That's an excellent question. The demographic. I try occasionally. Yes. The demographic is different because I think Cena was going to appeal to a younger 
demographic. I think Danielson would be that next level. Hard for me to say, but I think I think it could have happened. Yes, I think. You know, look, Cena got some great fucking reactions, and Cena's a real to you to coin the a Yiddish term that Sweet Lou will love. He's a mensch. Yeah, John, he's a mensch. John Cena's a mensch. He's a sweet guy. He's, you know, it's even when I, I took and I think I told you this story. I took Zach to meet him eleven years ago, maybe twelve years ago, and oh, it was wait in a minute. Village. Hold yes. on, listener. It's time for weepy weepy dad story. <laughs> So Zach was, I think, 11 or 12 years old, maybe 10 years old. And John Cena was his favorite wrestler. And I got him a meet and greet photo and autograph opportunity with John Cena at a Wizarding World convention in Philadelphia. Gave it to Zach over Christmas. This will be a little weepy. We stood in line for about 90 minutes to meet John Cena. We had our ticket. When we got up there, John Cena says, now the champ is here. Referring to my son, he said. Oh, he. Well, I thought I thought he was talking about you, but please. No, he wanted nothing. But I, I, you know, where normally I try to elbow my way into the limelight, I actually pulled back and I stayed back. And this was Zach's moment. And uh, th- this is a really sweet story. And he said, "The champ is here." And then he said, "Champ, will you do me a favor? My arm is tired. Will you hold my belt?" And he gave Zach the world title. And I still have the photo of John Cena and Zach and Zach's smile. You have never seen as it, you know, you know, the old expression ear to ear. You have never seen a smile like this kid had within one minute of the meet and greet being over. And he gave Cena a hug and Cena, Cena hugged probably 4,000 kids that day. Zach walks out and Zach broke down in tears. And he was 11 years old. And that's how important meeting John Cena was to him. And every time people shit on John Cena and I would, I understood it and I got it at the same time, what he's done for disabled children and children in general, what a role model he was for my kids. Right. I mean, it was, you know, this was a guy that was just a stand up guy that would never turn heel. And Zach eventually outgrew John Cena and moved on to, you know, a bunch of other wrestlers like Ric Flair and, you know, Jericho and Danielson, et cetera. But that moment was absolutely huge. And I will always have a soft spot for John Cena. With that, I think John Cena skews to a bit younger demographic. I think the Danielson thing, uh, I think he encompassed everybody. So, so I, I would I, I would go Danielson over Cena. Okay, but let's be uh, honest. You know, you talked about all the work that he does with Make-A-Wish and, and things like that. Uh, absolutely to his credit. Do you think Danielson and the character that they had that was getting over, do you think that character, because let's be honest, John Cena, part of John Cena getting over uh, to where he started making, he started off with the direct-to-video movies and stuff like that, but then he started uh, coming in. And by the way, he's got a, a great comedic timing. You know, I've seen him in a few movies where he was very funny. Do you think Danielson could have gone that way and gotten into films? Did he have that sort of appeal where, so. you know, Brian Danielson so. in a movie could have meant something? I don't think so. I'd say Danielson's interviews, his promo work, it's good. It's definitely not bad. He's, but it, it's not that next level. And guys like John Cena, The Rock certainly has it. I even felt Stone Cold Steve Austin, who did make a few movies, right? Sure. But, yeah, yeah. And Bret Hart did, too. Bret Hart was in a couple of Westerns. Edge. I tell you what, Edge made a couple of movies, and I was like, Edge is pretty good. Like, I don't see a flaw here. With that, I saw Batista's new movie this past weekend, and I don't think this was Batista's 
best role to date, but he's done well with it. I don't think Danielson was the crossover guy that, that some of those other guys were, though. All right, so we'll uh, maybe post a, a poll to see who you would want to headline a pay-per-view. Uh, you're given six months to get a guy to headline your event. Who are you picking out of those six guys? In their prime, I might add. So very off topic for just a moment, the news breaking yesterday that Tom Brady has retired from the NFL. This is the second retirement. Maybe it's the uh, long running uh, uh, retirement tour. I don't know. But uh, so I was listening to some people talk about it. Of course, ESPN immediately began breaking out the lube or the gel because they could not, you know, just spooge hard enough. On, on the uh, career of Tom Brady. And, of course, then you got all the people, oh, yeah, wait till a week from now, he's going to unretire and play for uh, whatever team. But so as I was reflecting on Tom's career and his legacy, multiple Super Bowls, uh, you know, all kind of MVPs, uh, great run in New England, uh, terrific success in Tampa Bay, and maybe not this year, but that's another story. But. What really came into my mind was if you're thinking about Tom Brady and there are people that'll say like, like Pat Mahomes apparently put on Twitter, oh, that he was, you know, he put the image of the goat. He's the goat, the greatest of all time. And so I started thinking about that. So Barry Rose, since you're a relative newbie to uh, the NFL wars <coughs> bandwagon jumper. But anyway, I thought to myself, if Tom Brady is that goat, could you see a comparison in the fact that, you know, he he's like, what, 45 years old now, just can't really walk away, keeps coming back when maybe he's lost uh, something. Maybe the gas tank is not full anymore. Maybe it's getting a little bit low in the old gas tank and he's walking away. Can you see a comparison between he and let's just talk about some other wrestlers that chose not to walk away when they were at the top of their game? Because, quite frankly, they can't because the need for the ego to be stroked, the need to uh, just, you know, to, and so they let themselves sort of become a shadow of what they once were. Tom Brady, Ric Flair comparison, what say you? Yeah, the only the only thing I would say, first off, let me address this uh, this malicious rumor before it gets out of hand about being a bandwagon jumper. Oh, please. You couldn't give two shits about the Eagles before this year when you Hold met on. Linda. Hold Let's be honest. Well, yes, that's accurate. <laughs> but it wasn't. I was I was I had committed to this season before the first game took place. So. Even, I mean, look, I can get on my hands and knees and I can thank God that I... Not the first time you'd be in that position. But well, anyway, only if money's being exchanged. <laughs> that's a whole other story, Jeff. But at the end you result... Turn, say, please hurry up, but go ahead. I, <laughs> please, please hurry up. I, uh, I had committed to this season. Uh, I told you, there were three things I had to commit to, Jeff. Do you remember all three? Um, <laughs> Let's see how well you know your partner here. Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, you committed to me. That's why. All right. No, I did. I I made Linda three promises at the beginning. Uh, I should say, I think it was over the summer. One, I was going to fully embrace Christmas. She, Christmas is the month of December is her favorite time. It's Christmas music, 24 hours a day. I told her that I would embrace it this year for her. I did. And I got to tell you, I was really happy I did that as well. The second thing I told her was I would embrace the Eagles for this year. I didn't promise the rest of my life. I said this year that was 
months before the season started. Am I fortunate that I, that they've had the best, their best record maybe ever and they're going to the Super Bowl? Absolutely. But that doesn't make me a bandwagon jumper. And to that end, I can't commit going next year or the year forward if I'm down in Florida. The third thing, which I know that I told you this, I told her that I would give golf a try and not just once, but I would spend a couple of months trying to get into golf. And I got to be honest, I have zero interest to play golf, but I'm really hoping that I do like it. Because Will, will you be going down to Augusta for the Masters? <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt <laughs> that. But I, at the same time, if I could get on a course especially in Florida, not completely embarrass myself, be outside. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. So I think I would do it. But getting back to your very important question, yeah. there's a there's a comparison there between Brady and Flair. Brady, I mean, you know, again, I, I followed a lot of the NFL this year uh, because of the Eagles, but I also follow the Bucks. I mean, Tampa is going to be my home, hopefully in the next couple of months. And I, I, you know, sad that he will not be there. I'm sure I'll get down there and now you can get tickets to go see Tampa again. And, uh, they may not have a winning record, but, uh, it's there. The, the big difference is I don't think Tom is, and I, again, I say this with all due respect. I don't think Tom is as pathetic as Ric Flair. Ric Flair, Given the opportunity, I believe he would still go out today and wrestle. I, I just, to me, it's, you know, I, I know he's like this. I don't know if you even heard this, Jeff. He is the the grand marshal of the Gasparilla Parade in Tampa this year, that we're, where he's making his home right now. But last I heard, Rick was living in a hotel in Tampa. And I, I don't, not like a Motel 6. I think it's a decent hotel. Uh, and Jim, Jim Berkeley hooking him up. <laughs> right, you would think. No, if he was over in the other coast, he would be be getting hooked up. But he's living in a hotel. He makes his presence known at the bar every night. That's believe, a shocker. That's a shocker, and I believe all of his drinks are either comped or somebody else is buying them. But Rick, to me, is a guy that is holding on for dear life to try to stay relevant. Brady's got more money than God at this point as well. I don't think he's – I think well, he's could, walking into the, the contract with Fox Sports that's like uh, – I think I saw somewhere – Yeah, it's like uh, the contract that he signed with him is like 10 years. Exactly. And it's, it's going to be more that he made over his whole NFL career. Yeah. Now, well, of I, course, the one you thing – I like that point about, you bring up, Jeff, that point that you bring up. Did you ever – and I'm sure you thought about this being the intelligent gentleman that you are. That's a Look rumor. at a guy – look at guys that – that are on the fan fest circuit. And let's take somebody, uh, who do we take? Let's not take a guy who's like a Wyndham or somebody, but Greg Valentine. Yeah. But it, maybe he's not fair only because, but a lot of guys now are actually making more taking photos and signing autographs than they were. Wrestling oh, oh, I get your point. I get seven point. or eight days a week. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, I know what I was going to say. The one thing that, uh, people don't, uh, won't talk about or don't realize maybe is that, you know, Tom Brady, uh, no matter how much he was being paid while he was quarterback, whether for the Patriots or the Buccaneers, never made as much money as his wife. His I wife bet. was the one that was making bank. She was, she was fucking raking it in, uh, the old supermodel money, uh, you know, whether you like her or not. Uh, it, it's just amazing that here Tom Brady is, you know, like they used to always say, Oh, he's like, uh, taking a, a smaller salary. 
for the Patriots so that they can go out and, uh, you know, sign contracts to, uh, other players to fill different needs that they have, which is great. It makes him a great teammate. But oh yeah, by the way, his wife is making fucking, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars more. So yeah, he could afford to do that. It wasn't like, you know, he was uh, home and he had 12 kids and a mortgage and stuff like that. And his wife, uh, you know, was sitting, uh, not doing anything but watching, uh, TV in the afternoon. But uh, anyway, I, I thought uh, as I listened uh, to uh, some people talking about it, I thought it was a, a, a fair comparison because, as you said, Rick is uh, – it reminds me of the old uh, uh, line. I think it was Dylan Thomas about uh, fighting against the dying of the light. And I think I think Ric Flair – I'm not talking about dying literally. I'm talking about uh, Ric Flair's relevancy. I think he kind of sees the dying of the light and that's part of what, uh, has made him pathetic because now, now you see him and he's like all of a sudden Ric Flair, who used to be the styling profile. Now he's wearing these suits that are like just, you know, it screams, Hey, look at me. Not like, Hey, look, I'm, uh, you know, like looking really sharp because I've got a custom made Armani suit. No, now I'm going to go out and wear the loudest fucking possible suit I can wear. Uh, so people will notice me and hopefully that will distract them from my, uh, my fucking thinning hair. Not that I'm one to comment on thinning hair, mind you, Barry. But, uh, anyway, I thought it was kind of a fair comparison because I think Brady, whether you think he was the greatest of all time or not, I think he had kind of started to fade a bit. He got that last Super Bowl with the Bucks, uh, you know, but, uh, this past season, you could definitely see the ability that he had, you know, even five years before to carry a team on his shoulders, uh, you know, was, uh, was something that was definitely lacking this year, whether it was because his team, you know, had faults or what, uh, or not. But anyway, I, I just thought it made for an interesting discussion. Uh, is Tom Brady, can you find a comparison between him and Ric Flair? Very, just very quickly wanted to include a little Barry Rose food talk. I know you're always ready for that, Barry. Oh, am I right? Yeah. So went out last night, uh, with the, uh, the lovely Mrs. Bowdrin and our kids because they were getting ready to head down to Orlando. Uh, uh, Disney World, the only theme park down there in Orlando. Is that correct, Bear? <laughs> <laughs> I chastised you off air about that. <laughs> so, but what happened that made me say, Oh, I got to tell Barry Rose about this. So we have a party of, let's see, here, the four, five people and the young man came up very nice, was taking our orders. He did not write down our orders, Barry Rose. Oh. And, and of course he would go, okay, you're having this, you're having this, you're having that, da, da, da. And he left. And then he came back to double check and he's like, oh, you said you had this, right? And you had that? Okay. I just wanted to, okay. And he left, came back. And one of the people he didn't ask was my son and messed up the order. So Barry Rose. All right. So say that again. What okay. Did- so we had five people. Okay. Okay. Five people gave their orders. He came back. After he took the orders without writing them down. Okay. He checked with uh, maybe Kim and my daughter. Okay. Did not double check with everybody. Just those two people. The person whose order he messed up was my son's whose order he didn't take. And then when the food came out, he passed it. And my son looked and he goes, yeah, this wasn't, wasn't what I ordered. And oh. when, uh, we called the guy over and we said, yeah, you got his order on there. Oh, you didn't say that. Uh, I thought you and he said, I thought like, I think my son got, um, I don't know, like, uh, tostada or something like that. And he goes, Oh, I could have sworn you said this. And my son goes, No, I, I definitely remember that I said this. And I got to be honest with you. My son is not, you know, he doesn't get really assertive like that often. Sure. Uh, so we, we did not let it affect our tip because he was a nice young kid. 
is that the thing, uh, the kind of thing we should have really called him out on or not that big a deal? Uh, well, I mean, so can I ask what the, what, what was the restaurant? It was a Mexican place, yeah. Now, just a, was it a chain or a mom no, and no, pop? No, no, a, a local mom and pop thing. Okay, so it's a small, it's not, okay, so it's different. If this was a bigger, I might, might, uh, different, but with it, how quickly did Andy's food come out after the server? Uh, oh, like within five minutes. Then I'm probably okay with it. Yeah. If, if everybody had finished and Andy's still waiting. Well, for let food. me put it this way. My, my complaint was not necessarily that, you know, uh, about the food. My, my question to you more than a complaint is as a manager, would you have spoken to your server and said, Hey, come on, you, you got to write the order down. You, you can't, if you Absolutely. can't memorize it, you know, that kind of thing. Hundred percent. That it, rule number one is. Here's the other thing: if you're running a restaurant and you're not writing down the orders and you're getting it wrong, and they're bringing out something for Andy that he didn't order, what's going to happen with that food? So now we've just made more food. Fucking inflation is hitting everything. There, that's either going to be waste or somebody has to eat it back in the kitchen. But at the end of the day, you want to cut down mistakes for a variety of reasons. First off, service. I mean, it, you know, everybody should get their food together. It shouldn't be piecemealed or auctioned off. Yeah, everybody should be writing down 100%. There should never be a question about that, Jeff. All right. Second food-related question. My wife <clears throat> is a fan of tater tots. So it You're led, not? You're I, not? I do not, I'm, not a, I'm not a tot fan. Ooh. I am a potato fan, though. Sure. So I understand that, you know, you get a hamburger – you don't get a baked potato, okay? Uh, you, you get a, a steak, you don't get French fries. You know, the, there are, uh, you know, you got your baked potato, your French fry, and your tater tots, and they all go with different things. But depending on what your main meal is, and maybe that's the answer to this question, which one of those, baked potato, French fry, or tater tots, which is Barry Rose's favorite and which is his least favorite? Okay, I'm sorry, baked potato, French fry, and tater tot? Yes. I didn't mean to wake you up. Yeah, exactly. I was taking a quick <laughs> nap. Ah, well, French fry. French fry followed by baked potato followed by tater tot. A really good French fry. And let's be honest, there's a lot of bad ones out there where they're not. And, and see, let me, I'm going to throw this out there, and I was kind of sitting on it, but uh, what the fuck. So people in our group have been praising Wendy's for a while. This is not a Jim Cornette thing. People that I trust, people that I love, people I consider family – have been praising Wendy's, saying how spectacular it is. I haven't been to a Wendy's in a few years, and I said, you know what? Let me go check out Wendy's, and I did. Got an order of fries. Heard the fries were banging, that they were fantastic. The fries I got were lukewarm and soggy. Maybe it's uh, a managerial problem, Bear. Or, or it just, it could easily be a store to store problem, which I get. I mean, I know that I can go to McDonald's in one place and the fries might be great and go to another. And if an employee takes them out too soon or lets them sit, it's going to change the complete complexity of the fry with it. Eh, but a good French fry, Jeff, to me, it's one of my favorite foods ever. So here's uh, a thing that I've noticed about myself as I've gotten older. I used to be a real French fry fan. Say that three times real fast. Uh, I like French fries. I don't love them the way that I used to. If you're giving me these three choices, I'm taking baked potato with butter every time. Uh, you know, eh, you know, if uh, bacon and cheese, if you're doing like, you know, the, the, 
potato skins, uh, I'm fine with that. But uh, generally, like, we got to get a nice steak, and I get a baked potato. I want butter, and I tell that waitress, you bring me some extra butter on the side, by God, just in case. Uh, I am not a tater tot fan at all. Uh, and I, I tell Mrs. Baldrin when she cooks them, I'm like, oh, man, I smell those freaking tater tots. And it's just not a smell that I embrace the way that I would. You know, when French fries are cooking, I like them. So you like French fries. Are you more a fan of the shoestring type of the uh, the, the steak kind of fries, as they say? Uh, how do you like your fries prepared? young? I parents? like them all, Jeff. But my favorite is going if you give me a McDonald's French fry the way it's supposed to be so hot you can't eat it. I can still smell the oil. It stands erect, so it's not lit. Not something you're familiar with these days, but anyway. Go no, ahead. not at all. But uh, And then it has to be salted properly. That, to me, is the ideal fry. Speaking that, of anyway. <laughs> I could eat I could eat steak fries. I can go to Red Robin. I could go to – I like the Nathan's Crinkle Cut. My least favorite fry, as we've discussed, is the waffle fry. Sometimes I like them if they're good. So often they're really not great for me, though. I will say to uh, counteract your uh, your attack on Wendy's French fries, I formerly was not a fan of Wendy's French fries at all. But then I want to say two, three years ago, I don't know what they did, but they changed the way they did fries. And my wife and I happened to go there and she was like, do you want to get fries? And I was like, I don't really like their French fries here. But she said, no, they supposedly changed it. And I must say that compared to what they were, a few years ago before they, I don't know if they changed the recipe or the way they prepare them. They are much better, uh, according to everything, you know, when I, every time I've gone there, they've been far better than they used to be. I will just say that I'm not going to allow you to defame the memory of Dave Thomas and Wendy's. All right, Barry, it's about time to turn this ship towards the dock and head for home. What do you say, my man? This was another fun episode, Jeff, really digging what we got going on lately. This episode went over about as well as Madonna at the Grammy Awards. Oh, Oh, my, Barry. Let's talk about Madonna and some bad plastic surgery. I mentioned to you before we started recording, I saw someone had mentioned on Twitter that Madonna looks great. If she was a 2,700-year-old vampire who ate babies. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. It was not a good look for Madonna and Barry Rose. Unfortunately, you told me before we started recording that uh, perhaps based on orders from the lovely Linda, you had to watch the Grammys. It was not a choice. It was uh, we were watching. So we watched. I guess we wrapped up uh, season two of Hunters. No spoilers, but I have raved about this to Jeff. Hopefully you'll be hearing about season two shortly. And lovely Linda, every step of the way with me on Hunters. We watched the latest episode of 1923, which was one of the Yellowstone spinoffs. And then Linda said, can we watch the Grammys? And we did. And unfortunately, we happened to join the Grammys right as Madonna Hole was making her appearance. And I got to tell you, from a personality standpoint, she is arguably one of the biggest turnoffs ever to me. I cannot stand it. But what she has done to her face is at a different level. And Sweet Lou had a great reference uh, privately, Jocelyn Wildenstein. If you remember Jocelyn Wildenstein, Jeff, do you remember her? Is that the lady that uh, looks like she's some kind of cat? Yep, there you go, yeah, the okay. cat lady of New York. Go ahead and do a yep. Google on that, folks. Uh, say the name again, Bear. Jocelyn Wildenstein. Yes, and uh, 
not 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 good uh, not good uh, one of the all-time bad plastic surgery moves uh, it's it's way past even like uh uh who are we thinking of some bad plastic surgery uh very uh you know your uh, Ryan Meg, Meg Ryan. Ryan. Yeah, that's usually the go-to of uh, people that uh, – Melanie just, Griffith. Melanie Griffith. And uh, there is – yeah, yeah you're uh, – Tom Cruise, he's like 60-something. I'm sure he's had plastic surgery, but it's not like, yeah. wow, that's some horrible-looking pla- – his is like good plastic surgery, but he's got you know lots of money so he can do that. But these other people – Madonna's got money. How do you have that much fucking money and have plastic surgery that bad? Maybe you need to fire that plastic surgeon. That's all I'm going to say. And on that note, I will remind you. That our producer is the sweet man, Lou Kippelman. Thank you, as always, for your duties, Lou. Uh, uh, I said duty, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your duties, Lou. Yes. I love it. Yes. Usually it's me who's getting thanked. Exactly. And my co-host, Barry Rose, <laughs> who did not quite uh, bring Jerry Lawler into port with uh, with Ben James there. I would remind you that I am the booker, Jeff Bowdrin, and my buddy, Gunny. I miss you so much, buddy. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some more uh, uh, humorous material that we can share with our friends in New Brunswick, Canada. Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.